Barely Emerging is recorded on the lands of the Ghana people. We at Haunted Cow Collective acknowledge the Ghana people and all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the sovereign custodians of this country. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Yep, they sniffed each other's asses and <laughs> they liked it. Just watching dudes in three-piece suits getting hypnotised by a stopwatch while some guys in the corner of the room just drinking straight absinthe would have been a fucking hoot and a holler. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Fairly Emerging. I'm Francis. And I'm Sid. Hello, Sid. Do you remember at art school doing a studio journal? I sure do, Francis. <laughs> I used to hate doing a studio journal mm. just because it's not how I would naturally work. Yeah. Like, for those of you who haven't been to art school, studio journal, it's mm-hmm. like a diary of the things that you've been learning or the artists that you've looked up to kind mm-hmm. of inform whatever work that you're doing. Yep. So in art school, the teacher would just be like, all right, so this week we're we're looking at Dadaism. Mm-hmm. So I want you guys to go and look up some facts about Dadaism, look up, you know, some key players mm-hmm. in Dadaism and stuff. Yep. And I would always do it super last minute. Profiles on people mm. were always dead birth, day to death. <laughs> where they grew up yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and it was just like i don't know how this is gonna help but i mean obviously it's good to know your history for sure yeah but yeah it's when you're at a university just being like salvador dali born (laughs) (laughs) but also the studio journal was a progress of your work so also it was a way to be marked and Mm -hmm. it was a a way to see your progress through the subject mm-hmm. and how it affects your work. Mm. And, you know, I, I did just dog it a second ago and say <laughs> it wasn't how I usually worked, but I do see the benefit of them because yeah. it's funny, like when you look back at how a work started mm-hmm. versus like what it ended up being, yep. it can be really interesting and it could also form the basis of like other works, like yeah. other really interesting works. It's like when I look back through my studio journals now, it's like you can pinpoint where I had like a bit of a breakthrough yeah definitely. you know and, and you can see like what a work maybe started out its life as being but then you know there'll be things like oh all of a sudden i've read this you know really great piece of theory yeah. by someone and then it's just pivoted the work completely yeah. so it's like all these little like it's like a timeline of your work almost and it it really does get informed by those little exercises in research that you do yeah definitely my inspiration points usually come in the shower oh, of course or doing the dishes mine are at 3 a.m yeah yep. oh, yeah 3 a.m <laughs> definitely the witching hour <laughs> the witching hour for sure yeah, or the artist hour i think <laughs> i think it's just the hermit hour really maybe the hermit hour. Yeah. <laughs> the unhealthy hour yeah like. the degenerates <laughs> the degenerate hour. Yeah, so at the degenerate hour, I'll have this like random eureka moment. But annoyingly enough, I don't keep a journal next to my bed. And I know yeah. that some people do. I know yeah. like a lot of, you know, famous artists are always like, oh, I will, particularly surrealists, mm. will be like, I had this really great dream. So they 
or wake up and write down what they can remember as yep. soon as they do it. Yep. That's another kind of studio journal. Definitely. There's like the educational studio journal where you are looking shit up, yep. like recording it, and then there's your own research. Yep, which I always really enjoyed the recording of my progress and my process. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was always really enjoyable for me, but the artist profiles and <laughs> the art theory profiles and all that sort of stuff mm. were a lot harder. But what we're doing today is a studio journal on art theories, which one of the movements we're doing today is surrealism. (laughs) So essentially what we're doing is the thing that we didn't find helpful. Yep. uni we were both like yeah like i found studio journals helpful when it was just me kind of ruminating on my own ideas but you know i say that i i love art theory oh me too i I, (laughs) I was i was about to say i feel like maybe i'm you know in the margins i feel like it it comes a lot more naturally to other artists maybe to record their own thoughts and processes on work but yeah i i get a lot out of looking at other artists work and other theories and just kind of stealing bits and pieces from them yes i i do love i just so passionate about art that it's like mm. if if I'm not looking at it then I'm sad. Yeah. <laughs> so today's episode is the unhelpful part of the studio <laughs> journal. So surrealism in a nutshell is works that really kind of tap into the uncanny. Yeah. It's about revolutionizing the human experience by balancing the rational with the irrational. Mm-hmm. A lot of surrealist artists really drew on their dreams, hallucinations, mm-hmm. and automatic drawing and also automatic writing. At the core of the work is the willingness to challenge imposed views and norms and it's also a search for freedom which it started in a time of upheaval with uh, two wars on either side of it mm. so it was the reaction to war and also the lead into a war so mm. there's a lot of revolutionary sort of stuff going on in surrealism mm. chronologically it was first kind of i guess outlined mm. by a, a writer not even an artist yeah andre breton so he published the surrealist manifesto in 1924 mm-hmm. so just after the first world war So as that ended, they started up surrealism. So the kind of founding fathers of the surrealist movement, I suppose, were Andre Breton and Max Ernst. I listened to some of the surrealist manifesto today and it sounded very much like someone who was fed up. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blame them, honestly. But in the way that it was described, it was very much a tantrum. Mm. It felt like Mm -hmm. a tantrum. But yet, no, what what I did think while while I was listening to it, I was like, maybe my own imposter syndrome isn't that founded because if this (laughs) type of thing can be, can start a new art movement, then I've got nothing to worry about. One that one that bled into pretty much everything since then. Yeah. You know, if if you've ever seen anything that was weirdly juxtaposed, I mean, mm-hmm. like there was an ad for insurance like going around maybe last year and it was like a guy in a magpie suit Yeah, that yeah. would just like rock up in places and been like, yeah, you should have gone to this guy. That's S- surrealism. Super surrealist. That's it, surrealist. It's you permeated know? into our culture today yeah. and people are still making surrealist works of art as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And it's, there all wonderful. Like, oh, yeah. I, I love surrealism. I don't know if that's coming across. <laughs> I think the term surrealism was coined in 1917 mm-hmm. by Guillermo Apollinaire. So mm-hmm. he was also a literary, he was a critic. Yep. But I think in the advent of the war, there was really this like humans had kind of lived through a bit of a waking nightmare. Yes. So, you know, rather than kind of surveying the beauty around them, it was more about like delving a little bit deeper into the human psyche. And yep. I suppose at the time, like what that 
unconsciousness was capable of. Yes. Which is a little bit freakish, but the manifesto defines surrealism as pure psychic automatism by which one proposes to express either verbally in writing or by any other manner, the real functioning of thought, dictation of thought in the absence of all control exercised by reason outside of all aesthetic and moral preoccupation. So mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the, like the automatic drawing and writing kind of came in. Yeah, the real focus on the subconscious. So for those who are maybe not aware, automatic drawing and writing is just when you kind of sit down, you don't have a single thought in your head, mm-hmm. you just put pen to paper and then you just let it rip. Which is harder. It actually is a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. yeah. The best examples of automatic drawing and writing in everyday life are if you're on the phone to Centrelink and you've been doodling on a pad of paper. <laughs> yeah. You're a surrealist. Yeah. You're doing automatic writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that in our life drawing sessions, it was really hard for people to blind contour draw. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, it, it feels a little bit closer to automatic drawing. It's, yeah. it's not automatic drawing because you are going from reference, yeah. reference, but it was really hard for people to look away from their canvas because yeah. it had to be perfect. Yeah. Whereas automatic drawing pulls away from that idea that the, the painting has to mean anything. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really relinquishing the idea of control, mm-hmm. which is what I think a lot of surrealist works are underpinning, whether yep. it's like dreamscapes and nightmares or it is that automatic drawing. It's about the relinquishing of reality and your control over that reality. Yep. Which is kind of separate from Dadaism where they just wanted to flip the whole table. <laughs> yeah. Dadaism was a tantrum, for yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. And then surrealism, they almost brought back the narrative, but it was anti-narrative as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the the game, the grotesque corpse. Exquisite corpse. Exquisite corpse. Sorry, I love grotesque things. So. Anyway, <laughs> um, the exquisite corpse, where you'll fold up a piece of paper and you will draw it with another person, mm. and you only leave the the end of the lines, and another person draws on your drawing, mm. and then you fold it out, and it's this weird and wonderful depiction of both of your brains. Yeah. Um, Jake and Dinos Chapman have a wonderful series of exquisite corpse. I think mm-hmm. they're etchings though. Yeah. So to get back to automatic writing, it's just when you, you sit down, you have no preconceived ideas of what you're going to do. You mm-hmm. kind of just put pen to paper and let your, your brain do the rest. Yep. So I know Jean Miro did a lot of those kind of works in, I think about like 30s, like mm-hmm. early, early surrealism. So it was kind of defined by those two pillars. You had the unconscious in like the nightmare state or the dream state, I suppose. And then you had the complete unconscious of the automatic writing and drawing. Yes. So as well as dreams, nightmares, and the automatic. Surrealist artists also drew a lot from like mysticism. So a lot of ancient and indigenous cultures as their kind of way of, I suppose, I'm doing air quotes, imagining Mm -hmm. alternative realities. Mm -hmm. All of those words were in air quotes Mm because I think if you're drawing from indigenous culture, you you can't say it's imagining an alternative reality if you have little to no scope about what that reality may be. Exactly. But overall, the movement had an aspiration towards the liberation of the mind as well as the liberation of artistic expression. Mm -hmm. So that also means seeking political freedom. So a lot of uh, surrealists were underpinned by anti-fascist movements, which I suppose, you know, given it's sandwich between war times would be yeah. pretty understandable. It definitely. <laughs> yeah. So now that we know a little bit about the background of surrealism, let's look at some of the key players in surrealism. So as we said before, surrealism officially began in 1924 with Andre Breton, who started his life as a Dadaist before kind mm-hmm. of cementing surrealism as the new movement. Yep. But it has its roots as early as 1917, not just with the naming 
understanding of surrealism, Mm -hmm. but by the paintings of Giorgio de Chirico. I may be pronouncing that wrong if I am. Sorry, George. He really kind of captured these street locations with a really hallucinatory quality. So Mm -hmm. a lot of his works, it has, you know, kind of jaunty perspectives, a lot of like shadow work, Mm -hmm. and it just, they all look just that little bit off. Yeah. Lots lots of arches, lots of like arches as in doorway arches. Yeah, yeah, doorway arches. A lot of like figures as well Mm -hmm. that don't look entirely human. No, it's almost statuesque. Mm. Mm -hmm. So he was doing that as early as about 1917. After that, though, he had abandoned that style. But Max Ernst, Mm -hmm. who was one of the key players in the surrealist movement, was heavily influenced by De Chirico. So as the Dada movement was ending in 1922, so a couple of years before surrealism was officially cemented in the manifesto, he had moved to Paris and was kind of working in collage. So he was doing a lot of like like really weird, like just juxtaposing like random images, like cutting up his old works and stuff. Yep, very, very Dada. Very Dada, yeah. yeah. But they all had this really like disorientating, just really illogical image, like imagery that really fueled Andre Breton's imagination. Mm-hmm. And he became more and more fascinated by Sigmund Freud. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I know, for such a for such a wonderful movement, it's underpinned by Sigmund Freud. <sighs> yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, very quick aside, Sigmund Freud. Psychoanalyst. Psychoanalyst. Creepy dude. Mm. A lot of his um, works and theories have been debunked. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've ever heard the phrase penis envy, that guy. And the castrated woman. A lot of dicks and vaginas in his work. Um, mm-hmm. The general consensus is that he kind of just wanted to fuck his mom. And wanted to kill his dad. Wanted to fuck his mom, wanted to kill his dad. But, you know, say what you will about him. He helped spark a surrealist movement. Mm-hmm. So not all bad news, I suppose. Yeah. If we had to have him... <laughs> then at least we got surrealists there (laughs) so we we bring up sigmund freud because a lot of that you know the work of the unconscious and the conscious mind is a lot of sigmund freud's work like he really kind of introduced i suppose that idea of like the ego and the id yes and a lot of surrealism comes from the id and the unconscious yeah so breton and uh and ernst and kind of others that were kind of in the founding stages of surrealism, started by experimenting with hypnotism as a means to access their unconscious creativity. Mm-hmm. So hypnotism as you would think it is, you know, like with a a little stopwatch, like going backwards and forwards. And then they tried to get into these weird trance-like states and then paint whatever came out. Being in their studio <laughs> or just being a fly on the wall <laughs> for any of these yeah. sessions yeah. would have been for our 2024 eyes being very... Just watching dudes in three-piece suits getting hypnotized by a stopwatch while some guy is in the corner of the room just drinking straight absinthe would have been a fucking hoot and a holler like i would love to see that (laughs) and like the i just can't imagine the stuff that was coming out of their mouths in that state as well if they were actually hypnotizing each other properly but even if they weren't like being 1923 lingo under hypnosis would have been so (laughs) fucking funny Oh, I think I would have been cringing the whole time. <laughs> like like drunkenly admitting that you have a crush on someone and being like, I just think she's a topping girl. You know, like <laughs> shit is so fucking good. Ultimately, they decided those experiments were dangerous. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find any more information on what was so dangerous. The but <laughs> it was probably the absinthe. Yeah. 
1923, so again, just before the official advent of surrealism, painters Jean Moreau and André Masson met and became involved with André Breton. Mm -hmm. So they were also influenced by Freud. And Breton had experimented with automatism in writing Mm -hmm. to create words with no thought or planning. So remember, André Breton was a writer, not a painter. So by 1924... Miron and Masson began their version, but with pen and ink. So this is mm-hmm. where the automatic drawing comes into it. Mm-hmm. Jean Moreau especially has some really great, like, automatic paintings. So after Moreau and Masson had begun doing experimentations with automatic writing, in 1925, as a response to automatism, Ernst practiced frottage. So for those of you who don't know what frottage is, you probably have done it before without realizing. Mm-hmm. It's a really common early art school exercise. Mm-hmm. It's where you put a bit of paper down on a texture surface whether that is like a stone or like a tree or like raised bits of writings on a tombstone even. Yes, we went in uni, we went to the graveyard and did <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. rubbings. Yeah, it's so it's when you put a bit of paper to, you know, that raised textured surface and you use commonly charcoal mm-hmm. um, and then you rub over the top of it. So you are left with like the imprint of the texture. Mm-hmm. So he started doing that and then he adapted that concept to oil painting. So he would spread pigments on canvas and then he would kind of scrape them back a bit. Mm. So really kind of pulling away from the realism of the 1800s and before. Mm-hmm. And then you got the cubist of like the kind of turn of the century. Mm-hmm. But cubism was still quite considered. Yes. Whereas, you know, automatic drawing and frottage, it was anti-considered. You know, it was just yeah. really in the moment kind of painting. Yes. So Max Ernst's 1927 painting Forest and Dove was used with that technique of just spreading pigments on a canvas and then scraping them back again. So, so far in the Surrealism Club, we have the founders, André Breton and Max Ernst, Mm -hmm. and then we have Miro and Masson. Mm -hmm. After that, Yves Tanguay. So he was a writer, but then again, Di Chirico, pops his head up again, inspired him to teach himself to paint in 1923. Mm So he did a lot of like infinity dreamscapes with ambiguous figures. Another one was Alberto Giacometti, a sculptor who met... Masson in 1928. He was influenced by African and Egyptian art, so a lot of poaching from other cultures yeah. in early surrealism, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, he combined those with a more dreamlike aesthetic to create like bizarre kind of stylized figures. Then again, we have a Romanian painter, Victor Browner. So he was introduced to the movement by Tanguay. He was pretty panned by by critics, um, and he was fascinated by the occult, which for the time, even more taboo as it is now, I suppose. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing about him was he did a painting in 1931 called Self-Portrait with a Plucked Eye, and then he lost his eye in a fight seven years later. Wow. So yeah. you can imagine to the surrealist, you know, occulty kind yeah. of mindset. That self-fulfilling was, prophecy. Yeah, yeah self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. That was probably a huge deal. Yeah. So we've used all these other people as a stepping stone to get to the big book. Mm -hmm. So many people, ourselves included, to be quite honest, when you hear surrealism, you think Salvador Dali. For better or worse, he is the kind of poster boy of the movement. Yep, the moustached poster boy. Yeah, the moustache. Yeah. Even if you don't know much about surrealism, you've probably seen him or his works. The clocks. Yeah. He's the Milton clock guy. If Mm -hmm. you don't know him by name, you do now. Yep. He joined the movement in 1928 and in a weird kind of full circle moment, he captured the attention of Sigmund Freud. So Freud preferred his work to any other surrealist, which kind of made him, you know, because he was teacher's pet in that mm. sense. So that's kind of made him the big boy. Yep. They sniffed each other's asses and <laughs> <laughs> they liked it. <laughs> so his paintings feature kind of self-torturing psychosexual undertones, which 
is what Freud characterized as the unconscious manifesting within the conscious world. So Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of, you know, like psychosexual, that's where a lot of the penis envy kind of comes in. His paintings border on illusion, but they have realistic draftsmanship, which is why I think he's had so much success because I think earlier surrealist works were quite, they were like very automatic, Mm -hmm. you know, they were a little bit like rushed. I suppose they were not as tightly refined as Dali's work was. You know, like technically his work is excellent. Yeah. You know, like very, very impressive works. It's just the person behind the works. The person behind the works, and for my money, overrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So (laughs) his most famous painting was done in 1931. So it's called uh, The Persistence of Memory or The Persistence of uh, Time, depending Mm -hmm. on which gallery you've seen it in, I suppose. That's the one with the melting clocks in it. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, when you go to Wikipedia's surrealism page that's probably the icon i haven't looked but i'm gonna put some money on it's that one (laughs) yeah it's that one or it's a renee magritte oh yeah if you go to wikipedia chances are the thumbnail is going to be salvador dali or renee magritte renee magritte i do love though Mm, i love i I love his work apple faces love yeah Yeah, so Rene Magritte, apple face guy, for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that's called Son of Man, if you want its its scientific name. Yep, scientific name. He also has um, the treachery of images. So that is Mm -hmm. the the painting of a pipe that says, uh, this is not a pipe underneath it. Love that one. Yeah, it was one of the ones where when I first saw it, I was just like, okay, cool, you're just trying to be subversive. But then mm-hmm. my art teacher at the time was like, well, no, it's paint. And I was like, oh, fuck, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I see what you've done here. So many layers to mm-hmm. that. And that goes into our titles episode. If you haven't listened to it, have a listen. Mm-hmm. But- Shameless self-plug there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. But this could have been one of the, the titles episodes because of its title. It, it just informs the work so much on so many different levels that it's just exciting. (laughs) Yeah. So Magritte, again, very successful in his work has, Mm -hmm. it's been one of the more persistently spoken about. Yeah, Um. So, you know, him and Dali are very much kind of like the big players in the surrealist movement. And I think it is, again, because he also had really refined work in a way. Like his work, it wasn't realistic. Mm -hmm. Like it still looked like a painting, but at the same time, it was more realistic than other surrealist works may have been. So it's a little bit easier to kind of, I suppose it's easier to find your way into a work when you can kind of get something from something yeah like you can kind of get what's going on like there's that wonderful uh painting that he's done it's the um the sky that's like it's raining men in suits (laughs) it's raining men in suits with umbrellas like they're all fucking falling down like mary poppins but like that's the rain it's the the original it's raining men it's so good yeah Yeah. and it's it's the humor within the uncanny Mm -hmm. that he unlocks like that's that's something with the the apple face guy as well where you just see this this suit this suited man with an apple in front of his face it's just yeah. it it's completely like bonkers but yeah. it's a refined bonkers yeah. i think with his so so far surrealism has probably sounded like a bit of a boys club it definitely is definitely yeah. i mean it is from you know the founding because of the time period mm-hmm. but there was some pretty dope women painters oh i had i went into quite a rabbit hole because whenever i look into art theory i always go mm, what were the women doing <laughs> <laughs> so i definitely had a lot of women of the surrealist movement and it was really hard for for them to it it wasn't as hard as other movements from previous eras and um to get in because there was an aspect of surrealism that did allow for women mm. to come in yeah but 
within reason, air quote, Mm-hmm. because there was the aspect of women being the muse that was still within surrealism mm-hmm. that a lot of the women surrealist artists wanted to pull away from, mm. but the uh, male surrealist artists definitely still did. So uh, mm. one of the one of the comparisons would be Salvador Dali's lip couch yeah. and Oppenheim's chicken feet table. Yeah. So you can see the difference between there where Salvador Dali is looking at the desirable aspects of femininity where men will actually literally sit on their lips. Yeah. And uh, Oppenheim was looking at just this real objection of a body like yeah. and of women's body as well. Like mm. I love the chicken feet <laughs> table. I don't know if it's the chicken feet table. I'm calling it the chicken feet table, but it's like bird legs and then just this round table and it's got some bird feet prints on the top of it Mm. and it is fantastic because it looks like just this stalk standing up and you can almost feel the hands on the hips when Mm. you look at it it's great she also did the fur teacup Mm -hmm. the fur teacup is one of the things that when we learned about surrealism at uni it was the fur teacup Mm. you know Yeah. yeah It Very was like, exciting work. Yeah, it was like here is a great example of both surrealist and abject work because mm-hmm. the thought about putting that furry teacup to your lips is mm-hmm. horrendous. So the story behind the fur teacup, she was at lunch with Picasso and Dorama and Picasso had commented on her bracelet, which was fur-covered, and he said, Anything can be fur covered today. And she said, "Mm, even this cup and saucer. And that's where it came from. She ended up making that cup and saucer lined with fur. Yeah, so she she officially made object in Mm -hmm. 1936 and it's still brought up as it should be because it's a fantastic work. Yeah. Several women also came to the movement through Max Ernst. Mm -hmm. Kind of unfortunately. (laughs) He liked women and he liked to date them, have sex with them and then bring them into the art movement. (laughs) Yeah, he kind of recruited them in a weird kind of pimpish way, which was a bit gross. So Leonora Carrington, she was wonderful, I think quite Mm. overlooked in surrealism Mm -hmm. as well. She officially joined the French surrealist movement in 1937. She ended up in Mexico in 42 because she had to flee, I think, as most people who were anti-fascist at the time did. Yep. But she brought together those occult ideas with, like, personal history as well. So that's another example of, like, you know, taking these, for the time, quite left-of-field influences and kind of merging them together. She has a wonderful painting called uh, Self-Portrait, or in parentheses, The White Horse Inn in 1937. Yes. Which was a wonderful one. That's the the one with the white horse outside of the window and then the rocking horse at the top, uh, and she has white pants on. Oh, yes, and she's got the hyena, that's right. And she actually said that she is like a hyena as well. So Ernst's fourth wife as well was American painter Dorothea Tanning. Dorothea Tanning. Oh, my God. Sorry, keep going. I love Dorothea Tanning. (laughs) Yeah. So she was um, an illustrator, so she was inspired to surrealism after seeing a show at the MoMA in New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you like to talk a bit about Dorothea Tanning? You had <laughs> such an explosion of excitement when I mentioned her name. I saw it next on the list. <laughs> so Dorothea Tanning, she's been called the last surrealist because mm-hmm. she died at 101 years old. So she Oof, died she had a good run. in 2012. Oh, damn. Okay. So she was called the last surrealist because she was the last of them that died. <laughs> so yeah, Dor- Dorothea Tanning, 
I didn't realize it was actually her that mm. painted Incline and Act Music. Yes. The creepy sunflower woman child hybrid like hallway. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I love Amazing. that one. I didn't realize it was her until we pulled it up, which is a little bit sad on my part, actually. So another woman artist that is commonly kind of lumped in with the surrealist was Frida Kahlo, mm-hmm. but she in her lifetime rejected that. She yeah. just said, I don't, I paint what I know, Yeah, which is myself. So we're tacking her in here because depending on your thought, she could be included in surrealism. Mm-hmm. I think from a contemporary lens, she kind of is. Yeah. But out of respect for her, we... Don't really see her that way. No. So surrealism it had its footing in literary. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was a writer's movement first. Then it became a visual art movement, predominantly in painting, because painting at the time was probably you know the the quickest and easiest way to do a lot of those like nightmare dreamscapes and the yeah. automatic writing and stuff. There was a lot of great like surrealist photography. I know we need to kind of shout out like Man Ray. He mm-hmm. did some really great ones as well. He specialized in like rayographs. It was his variation of a photogram. So they are when you expose photographic paper with objects placed on it. Yep. Maurice Tabard as well, a French photographer. He was kind of brought into the movement by Magritte and Man Ray. Uh, he did a lot of like double exposure and solarization. Mm-hmm. And I do know also, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but Remedius Varro. Uh, she did a lot of self-portrait photography of herself. Remedius. Remedius, sorry. Remedius Varro, yeah. Yep. Another uh, German photographer, Hans Belmer, he used a lot of like handmade life-size female dolls as his subjects too, which yes, has some pretty yeah. cool results, I will admit. Yeah, Dora Maar as well, who was unfortunately overshadowed by her affair with Pablo Picasso, but mm-hmm. she took a lot of portraits of the surrealists as well. Yeah. There is also a lot of like surrealist films. So one that we looked at at university was Un Chien Andalou, which mm-hmm. uh, was Louis Bunel's collaboration with Salvador Dali. Yep. I think it was in 1929. If you haven't seen the, the film, you might have seen clips from it or stills mm-hmm. from it. If you haven't seen it, I won't spoil it. But for those who know, the eye scene. Mm-hmm. Very unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say the eyeball and leave it at that. And and I hope that that's a trigger warning enough of me going. <laughs> 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 the first surrealist film was The Seashell and the Clergyman, which is in 1928 mm-hmm. by uh, Germain Dulac, which has a screenplay by Antonin Artaud, who's another uh, great surrealist writer as well mm-hmm. so yeah even like surrealism it had its its footing and it had its inception in you know like 1917 ish mm-hmm. if you want to kind of place it at that like cemented in 1924 but it it stood the test of time you know i think really did yeah. people just like weird shit yeah <laughs> i think that's what it comes down to like if i was going to put surrealism in a nutshell aside from dreamscapes unconscious it's just weird shit yeah surrealism yep. is just all about weird shit and people and love that people need that there was one one thing that Surrealist really loved was the cinema mm-hmm. and being involved in the cinema, like yep. sitting in the cinema and being in this room that could be a dream or you yeah. could be outside of yourself yep. and you're looking at something. So that's yeah. something to note as well, that this yeah. Surrealism really had its claws in so many different aspects of life and art. Yeah. You know, like in 1945, Dolly was hired by Hitchcock to create a Surrealist dream sequence in Spellbound. Mm-hmm. Some more like recent examples of directors, especially 
Italy, Chilean director Alejandro Jodorowsky. He's a, a fucking great one. Yeah. And my favorite, David Lynch. Yeah. David Lynch oh. has some incredible paintings. Actually, my microphone right now is on uh, Francis's David Lynch book. <laughs> Yeah, my t- my table is slightly too short, so every recording session that you hear, uh, Sidel is being propped up with David Lynch. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I have a little bit of a flip through. <laughs> Which is just fantastic. Yeah. So that is kind of the bare bones of surrealism. I'm sure we can do a part two on surrealism of because course, it is so such, much to go into. There is so much to go into and this is kind of a little bit of a taste tester. Yes, yes. We would love to go into some more, you know, detail about specific artists, especially some of the, the films and photography because we we went through a lot of like painters today yep but yeah so we hope you have had fun listening to this little studio journal we had fun revisiting ours um au revoir (laughs) (laughs) catch you on the flippity dip (laughs) slip dip You've been listening to Barely Emerging, a podcast by Haunted Cow Collective. You can find us on Instagram at Haunted Cow Collective, look for the spooky cow, or follow along at Barely Emerging for updates on new episodes and behind the scenes. You can also visit us at hauntedcow.com.au. This podcast is made by emerging artists for emerging artists, and together we are Barely Emerging. <laughs>